can solve this. We don't need gas in the home. We don't need gas for cooking or even heating. So all these things are for us to look forward to and they will happen in our lifetime. This is Climate Curious, the podcast for people who are bored, scared or confused by climate change. I'm Marion Pasha, the director and curator at Telex London and the co-host of this podcast alongside the amazing Ben. Hi, I'm Ben Hurst, activist and advocate exploring what positive masculinities can look like and self-confessed climate normie. So welcome back to part two of this Climate Curious live recording. We're here discussing the energy crisis and what climate has to do with it. I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Clover Hogan, today. And we, I mentioned earlier that Clover is like my, one of my go-to people for climate. And so, Clover, I wanted to say, what happens if I send you a question about climate finance? I want to run and hide. Uh, is the short answer to that. Yeah, I have to say climate finance is one of the most confusing things for me when it comes to to understanding all these systems. Is that something you find as well? Oh, 100%. I, um, I'm not a numbers person, full stop. Um, actually, shout out, we have Force of Nature's finance manager in the audience uh, tonight. Um, but I don't actually Who know. Who I'm hoping is a, is a numbers person. He's very much a numbers person. I actually don't know how Force of Nature is data float before he came on board. Um, but all to say, I'm quite scared of finance and quite scared of numbers. Um, and I think particularly if you bring together like climate, which is already very overwhelming and global finance, it feels like this abstract shadowy figure in the background that is kind of like pulling the strings of the climate crisis. Um, but it's very confusing and it's, it's unclear like where you even start. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, me too, because I would love to understand more things about this. I feel like it's another system that interacts with so many of our systems. And, and yet it, it is hard. It's hard from the outside to really access it. And we don't have lots of people that we can ask lots of questions to, which is why I'm so excited to, to introduce our, our next guest. So Mark Campanelli is the founder of Carbon Tracker Initiative, a nonprofit independent financial think tank researching the impact of climate change on financial markets. So you feel like, Mark, the perfect person for Clover and I to ask loads and loads and loads and loads of questions to. And I really want to start with like a simple one, but I think a big one. What do climate change and finance have to do with one another? Like, why are we talking about these two things together? Now, there's, you know, it's not going to be a simple answer to that because it's, finance is it's, it's complex. It's hugely complex. But if you think of climate change principally, as we you know, heard from earlier on from Tessa, the burning of fossil fuels, a lot of this is to corporations. And many of these corporations are listed on the London Stock Exchange. We talked earlier about BP and Shell. Those two companies alone pay 20% of all the dividends paid to pension funds in the UK. They're significant. And so, of course, what you have is owners of corporations, pension funds ourselves, insurance companies, investment plans. Uh, so um, investors own climate change because they own the fossil fuel system. So you talked about pensions. That's a big one. Um, and investment. Like, can we just can we delve into that a little bit and maybe just talk about it a bit more so that. Yeah, because I've never I mean, I think a lot of people listening maybe haven't thought about those things before. Yeah, um, well, if you're a company and you want to build a new project, um, you go to the bank to borrow money if you need to do that, or you'll go to the bond market, 
which is like a, a form of a debt that pays interest to a bondholder, um, or you go to the stock market. Now, London and New York are the two global financial centers for the fossil fuel industry. Around 15% of the world's future emissions are going to come from companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. This is how it ends up in people's investments. Um, and London isn't ashamed of the fact that it's the leading financiers of coal and oil and gas. It's something it celebrates. London has historically been a center for mining finance and uh, companies are raising money to fund the fossil fuel industry through London all the time. Right. And we heard from, well, you know, we heard from Tessa, for example, that you have the, the, the most, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, advantageous tax incentives, for example, for being here. But if you're not a fossil fuel company, if you're uh, just a person with a pension, how does that interact with you? Like what you said, it's the biggest payouts. Yeah, Can you tell so, us a bit more about that? So um, 10 years ago, when Carbon Tracker got set up, um, it helped spawn the launch of the fossil fuel divestment movement which today with the universities um, and the students campaigning and the church groups and endowments and some of the biggest endowments in the world have announced that they've divested from fossil fuels. And if you go to divestinvest.org, you'll see the figures. It's around 30 to 40 trillion of pension funds and endowments have, have just sold off coal or got rid of their oil and gas or all three. And, and I think it's a recognition that there's this, this fundamental link between the financial system and the fossil fuel system. The biggest banks in the world, um, JP Morgan, Citigroup, HSBC, these types of Barclays Bank, are huge funders of the fossil fuel system. Now, for a lot of people, they go, well, you know, I've heard of JP Morgan, what's that to do with me? Um, but these household, household name banks, Barclays and HSB and, and many of the others, are where people will have their account. Uh, so um, somebody was just emailing me just the other day that the National Trust, which is one of the biggest membership organizations in the UK, the members of the National Trust have got together to file a resolution to tell National Trust to stop banking with Barclays because of their funding of the fossil fuel um, system. So there's the link. Now, what can the public do? I, I happen to be a fan of a shareholder activist group called Share Action. Okay, tell us in a bit the UK about that. That files and supports shareholder resolutions and advocacy. And there's a group in the Netherlands that's been taking on Shell very effectively called Follow This, files the shareholder resolutions. At Carbon Tracker, we support with our analysis into these companies. But there's a few others that you might want to know about. Um, Richard Curtis, um, the filmmaker, helped launch Make My Money Matter, which is an attempt to get the public involved and mobilized around activism. Now, investing in finance can be pretty abstract, but groups like Make My Money Matter... Uh, and share action are really good at saying here's things you can do now even if you have a insurance policy so a lot of people have insurance policy with their house or with their car if it's with a group like legal in general or aviva there's a little group that's been launched called two mellow and they help mobilize people with policies with people like legal in general to give their voice on shareholder votes not just on climate but on things like diversity um, on the board and, and fair, fair pay. So all these things that we're uh, interested and concerned about, it allows for more, um, less abstract decision-making, things that the public can get involved in and get interested in and, and mobilized around. 
And, and what we'll do is we'll put in some links to some of these organizations so that if you're listening and you want to kind of think, how can I get more involved? But that's really helpful to, to talk a little bit about how we can take these more abstract systems that maybe feel far away yeah. and see how we can. And there's news happening. Let's just say there's news happening all the time on the divestment side. It's not. It's, it's, I, I tweet a little bit at Camp and Early Mark, and I'm tweeting news stories every couple of days about, I think it was the University of uh, Lancaster this week, the, the students managed to persuade the university to get rid of all fossil fuels from the endowment. Mm. And these kind, and um, the uh, pharmacy today, the, uh, the UK Pharmaceuticals Association, they've announced that they're divesting from fossil fuels. So, okay. I mean, these... These are little signs of hope because people can act. There's things people can do, and there's something everybody can do. Everyone, in one way or another, has a bank account, a pension scheme, an insurance policy, and there's great campaign groups that focus on nothing else but these issues. On the theme of tweets, yes, um, I swear every time I go on Twitter, I'm bombarded by greenwash ads from Shell about how much they're investing in renewables, apparently. Um, I'd love you to give us a little bit of a picture about how much money is actually moving into renewables, into a green transition versus how much is consistently being invested in keeping this fossil fuel system alive. Well, the disappointing reality, and it's this is data that's come from the International Energy Agency, that on average, something between three and 4% of the capital expenditure of the world's largest oil and gas companies is going into renewables. 95% of the renewable energy capacity built in the world today is being bought by people other than the fossil fuel industry. People say, well, you know, BP and Shell, they're trying to make the move. It ain't quick enough, it ain't big enough. And it doesn't deal with the crisis, the catastrophe that we're facing today. It it shows no sign of really any action of significant move. But the most important thing is um, they've got to stop exploring for more. They've got to stop spending our pension fund money and bank savings on going to find more. The world does not need any more new fossil fuels. And this is something we've heard before. We heard it from Tessa earlier. We've heard it from other guests, this idea that, you know, we don't need to pull more things out of the ground. I'm curious if you have a guess, and you might, might not have this number off the top of your head, but, you know, how much of that percentage would have to, like... If it's three to four right now, what would need it? What would do we need it to be to actually be making meaningful change at scale and pace in investment in renewables? So we have the world is built around. So you measure energy in watts. Okay, so we're going to get a bit technical. And sorry, millions of watts. You can get to gigawatts. So the world's built around two gigawatts of wind and solar so far, and it's growing at about twenty percent per annum. So at that rate of growth, within six years, we would have built eight terawatts of renewable energy, which is about 40% of the world's energy uh, usage or needs. But the other way of thinking about that is within, a, within uh, a decade or two, we would have built enough renewable energy to be the equivalent of all the coal and gas-fired power that we've built in the last 100 years. That's just how fast it's being built. And, and in the United Kingdom, renewable energy, renewable UK, said there's around 85 gigawatts of, of wind and solar being built in the pipeline over the next decade. And to put that into context, that is more than China is building. So the UK has the potential to be a powerhouse, literally, of renewable energy. 
that we could be exporting into Europe. We could be a huge, if we get it right, we could be a huge uh, energy exporter into Europe. But it's got to come with the right um, grid balancing systems, the right battery energy storage, uh, whichever the technology that we're using. Every podcast needs a go. That's greatest of all time. And ours is the Global Bank City. City is Telex London and Climate Curious's headline partner and has been with us every step of the way on this podcast, supporting our vision and encouraging us to be courageous and adventurous with our ideas. Instead of your typical boring ad, we actually thought you might be more interested to hear about some of the initiatives City has played a part in. Through the City Foundation's Resilient Futures Training and Foundation Grant, young Beiruti entrepreneur Allah was able to overcome energy insecurity by purchasing battery-powered lights. This small change enabled Allah to keep her shop open for longer hours, securing her income and her future. It's great to hear how the funding of renewable energies can help combat energy insecurity, giving power back to citizens and communities. Nice one, City. Thank you for making this podcast possible. Inspiration doesn't come in one-size-fits-all packages, but Telex London's Beyond Borders event gets pretty close. Join us at Telex London on Sunday the 2nd of October at the iconic Sadler's Wells Theatre, where 10 expert speakers will explore the theme of Beyond Borders, how we see the world beyond the boundaries, silos and labels that keep us divided and ignite change through collective action. Real inspiration, real ideas, real change. Grab your tickets at telexlondon.com See you there. And remember, you get 15% off with the code CCLIVE. That's C-C-L-I-V-E. Stay curious. So one of my favorite TED Talks, I love watching TED Talks. I watch them in the bath. That's my happy place. Uh, one of my favorite TED Talks is with Sapora Berman, um, who started the um, Stop Fossil Fuel Proliferation Treaty. And something really profound, she says, uh, which has stuck with me ever since, is that you know every oil company wants to be the last company to extract the last barrel of oil from the ground. Mm-hmm. And you basically said as much in the fact that, you know, fossil fuel companies are not wanting to disrupt themselves, right? They they see a future in which they can continue extracting as much as possible. Um, so, you know, this is urgent. We have a closing window of time. How do we actually stop that proliferation? Because we can talk about how attractive renewables are, but how do we just stop people from digging this stuff up? Yeah, so... Um you know, Carbon Tracker, when we got going, the thing that got me uh, thinking hard and the trigger for this. So can I go a little back to yes, some please. of the origins? Take is, us to a story. Is I, I saw a company being listed on the London Stock Exchange, two companies actually. One was called Asia Energy. It was building uh, one of Asia's biggest coal-fired power stations. It was in Bangladesh. As we heard from Tessa earlier, Bangladesh is one of the countries underwater. Um, and then around the same time, a company called Extrata, which is just a coal company, was listing in London, it's now called Glencore. And I saw a whole parade of coal on oil and gas companies come into the London stock market. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, some of them might be able to develop their coal, but not all of them. And that led to the idea of just finding how many coal companies are, are trying to raise money, how many are there, um, and how many more can develop their reserves before we tip over these climate thresholds. And that took us to the work of, um, of carbon budgets. How much CO2 can be in the atmosphere before we go over one and a half degrees of warming? We've got the four, over 
the highest concentrations of CO2 in 400,000 years. So how much more can we, can we go? And the, the science is not exact on this, but it's around 300 gigatons. It's millions of tons so, of, of carbon dioxide. So to, to clarify, this is how much we can burn, we think, and stay yeah. below the 1.5 degrees. Now, to put that into context, we're emitting around 41 gigatons of carbon dioxide from burning coal and oil and gas. So the mass is pretty simple. That means we've only got six or seven years left before we break through the conditions associated with one and a half degrees. And then for two degrees, we've got about another decade or two. Now, we've got to bear in mind, we've not seen these conditions for hundreds of thousands of years. The last time we had that kinds of concentrations of carbon dioxide, you know, everyone knows that London was a steamy swamp, which is why you found alligators and hyena bones and alligator bones in London, because, of course, London was a steamy swamp. Now we've got this kind of condition that we think is normal, but actually for hundreds of thousands of years, London wasn't like that. We've going back to the, the preconditions associated with that kind of environment. So we've got around seven or eight years left based on those kinds of emissions. So which begs the question, why are investors, the banks and the pension funds pouring literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year into finding more? It doesn't make any sense. So Carbon Tracker, we looked at Shell, BP, Exxon, Chevron, all of the others, and we've said, okay, what reserves do you control? You can look this up, carbontracker.org. You can go and see on our website. The companies have around 1,000 gigatons of CO2 in their reserves, okay? So that is three times more than the carbon budget. But, of course, companies don't own most of the reserves. Most of the reserves are owned by governments. So they own another 2,000 gigatons. So, so there we go, 3,000 gigatons of CO2 in the known reserves of coal, oil, and gas. There's 300 gigatons left of carbon budget, so there's your answer. The so answer ten, is we have ten times 90, more. 90% of the world's fossil fuel reserves have to stay in the ground for us to avoid catastrophic warming. We're already seeing warming at, at you know, 1.1. It's looking awful. The, 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 the images today of the Amazon on fire, just, just unbelievable. The, the satellite images, just Google Amazon on fire. Not now, but have a look. It's, it's deeply Not worrying. Not if you want to have a good so day. So when we get to one and a half degrees, and we're, we're, we're on a pathway based on the national determined contribution these commitments governments have made, based on our analysis of the plans of the oil and gas majors like Exxon and Chevron, we're well on the way to, to 2.3 um, and beyond of, of warming. It's going to be a catastrophe. So the urgency to stop these projects is, is compelling, whether it's you're doing it with your pension plan or you're sitting in the street with XR or, or you're making your protests. We have to get people's attention focused on this. So this is pretty bleak stuff. I think we all agree. But you're an optimist. So I want to ask you, like, what are the alternatives? So we know, so you've actually done, I think, a brilliant job of explaining the different components and like that fit together in the current system and and how we hit these various thresholds. Yeah. What is the alternative? Like, what do you see in your work and your experience as being the alternative to the current system? I'm not going to be the first person to say this, and I won't be the last. And I've said it before, but let me say it again. Please. Is um, we're the first generation in human history to do these things, cooking, heating, generating power, and moving ourselves around without having to burn anything since the days of the Neanderthals, since we sat in caves and, and built fire to cook and heat ourselves. We can do all those things without burning a single thing. We're moving from an era of molecules 
to an era of electrons. We can do all of these things using electricity and we can make electricity from the wind and the sun. So our children will look back, I think, and say, okay, well, why were we burning all this stuff when we could have been using it for something more useful if we had to take it out of the ground? Uh, we can do everything um, using solar and wind and geothermal and alternative energies, which, as I said earlier, growing at 20% per annum. And the most fantastic thing about this is the more we build, the cheaper they get. And the other thing that you look about the energy system, um, it's, now, I don't know how many of you got printers at home. You'll yeah, notice, let's do this survey. Let's yeah, do this survey. Are, how many oh, still has a printer, printer at office. home? You go, well, you, you, or, yeah, you okay. buy a printer for £100. You go, well, that was really cheap. It's only when you buy the ink do you realize what, what they're in the game of is selling your printer ink. And you're spending £200 a year on printer ink or more if you're using it as a, in an office environment. The fossil fuel industry is exactly the same. They sell you a piece of kit called the internal combustion engine, or they sell you another piece of kit called a gas-fired power station, what they're really doing, which is the clever bit about the oil and gas companies, is they're selling you fuel. They know you need the fuel to make the kit work. With no fuel, kit doesn't work. That's the problem that we have in the energy crisis today. Now, what's going to happen in this new energy system um, of we're, gonna not, we're not going to need the flows. We're not going to need the gas. We're not going to need the oil or the coal because we're going to build a single unit which is going to generate the power from the sunlight and the wind and it's all going to be free. So the, the remarkable news is the, for me is the energy system is going to get smaller and once you've paid off for the cost of your solar and your wind, the cost of your energy is essentially going to be zero. It's going to be the maintenance costs. So the cost of energy is going to drop. Um, and this was the promise. Remember, this was the promise of nuclear, but that, it wasn't true. It was never going to be true. But this is the promise of wind and solar, is we're going to have a renewable, we're going to have a resource which is going to change everything politically, economically for households. And it's going to change, um, it's going to change the way financial markets are going to have to think because we're moving from a fossil-based system, which Carbon Tracker, we estimate that all that coal-fired power and oil and gas and pipelines and railways is worth around $30 trillion. And over the next decade, when we get to net zero car emissions by 50%, we're going to have to replace all of that with a new system that's going to be better, more efficient, more reliable. And as technologies, we're going to have to get right. Battery storage is the obvious one, but we can solve this. We don't need gas in the home. We don't need gas for cooking or even heating. So all these things are for us to look forward to, and they will happen in our lifetime. Can I talk about something that pisses me off? <laughs> You're a co-host. You can do whatever you want. Something that pisses me off um, is the obsession with individual lifestyle changes when it comes to the climate crisis, right? You Google how to solve the climate crisis um, and it's, you know, buy the reusable coffee cup, you know, yeah. switch your kettle off, turn the lights off, this kind of stuff. And it really pisses me off because we know that that was largely an invention by the fossil fuel industry, right? Like BP, then British Petroleum, uh, which quickly rebranded to Beyond Petroleum, 
uh, created the carbon footprint calculator. It created the premise that, hey, you as an individual are responsible for the climate crisis, not the, you know, 100 companies responsible for 71% yeah. of emissions. However, I do believe in individual agency and individual influence. And so beyond the turning off the lights when you leave the room and switching off the kettle, you know, I would love to hear what does it look like for individuals in collective to exert that influence so that we can get money moving in the right direction, transition away from this dinosaur fossil industry toward that renewable industry. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. This this individual carbon calculators was an attempt by the fossil industry to take people's attention away from what the fossil industry was doing. There's no doubt about it. And, and that was part of the, you know, the genius or the subtlety of greenwash um, in it. And um, uh, I remember the adverts that used to appeared in The Economist just the other year of a picture of a of a of a green molecule and like a like what looked like an amoeba. It was an algae actually. It was funded by Exxon. And they're saying it doesn't really matter what you're going to put in your engine, it could be an algae. Actually it was a very smart piece of advertising. What they were really doing was they were defending the internal combustion engine. And that kind of greenwashing was saying actually they you know they spend more on their advertising than the than they actually spend on the algae development if they were going to use it as a biofuel. That's the kind of things that we, that we really have to be, you know, careful and and and, um, and look out for. So so um, you know, I've talked about this moving from a centralized energy system, large gas and coal-fired power. Now you're going to need some centralized energy in part because of, of industry, but that can be managed, in my view. You're going to move to a decentralized energy system. And I remember I was walking through, I was doing a, a talk somewhere in, in Oxford, and I walked past some old Victorian buildings, and on it it said, the Oxford Electricity Company. And I suddenly realized, actually, electricity companies were local. They were at the town level, the village level. Um, and so um, I think that we're moving to a system where, I mean, I was just reading the other day, I, f I forget the two companies involved. One was a UK house builder, one was a, a UK power company. And they were saying, in the new houses we're building, all the energy you're going to get is going to be free to the, as, a, as a selling point for the house. And the reason why they're putting in air source heat pumps, they're putting in roof-mounted solar, and they're putting in electric batteries. And then the electricity company is saying, we're going to buy all the electricity coming from your house. Now, imagine a situation where villages own their, their own turbine, which you see extensively in places like the Netherlands and Germany. You're seeing it now in the UK. We have investment platforms like FX, which does community energy share issues, which I think is fabulous. Um, and you're building this decentralized system and getting people kind of, not you can't quite get off the grid, but you're making yourself less dependent on the grid and you can be in a situation where you're selling your energy into a grid and being paid for it. Uh, so those are things we can, we can see. Uh, but there's a lot of work to be done. We're building, what, a couple of hundred thousand new houses a year, but you're building all these houses and then you have to pay for them to, the retrofitted, then you have to, these new houses, you have to rip out the new gas boilers to put in the air source heat pumps. It doesn't make any sense. This is what we need to change. I feel like you've taken us on a really great kind of journey from the reality, which can feel overwhelming, to some really great alternatives and a little bit about what the future could look like, a renewable future with these more decentralized um, uh, energy. And, and I guess... So first, I just want to say thank you, because as we were saying, like, this is a complicated topic and one that can be talked about in a really kind of gatekeeper exclusionary way. And so hopefully all our listeners feel like they're 
a bit more kind of, they actually have some things they can think about doing if this is something that they want to do. Um, so I just want to say thank you for that. And now it's time for our climate confessions. Let's fess up to the bad habits we just can't kick. So I think, yeah, Clover, I'm going to ask you to go first again. And I do want the slightly naughty climate confession or the actually pretty bad climate confession. I mean, that is your choice. I cannot tell you which way to go with that. (laughs) Okay, so I haven't bought new clothes in a really long time, um, ever since I learned about the fast fashion industry. Um, However, there are limits to what you can buy from a charity shop. so and and I'm really resistant to paying like 20 pounds for a pair of sustainable uh, cotton socks to swaddle my feet. Uh, so the other day I gave in and I bought uh, socks from Tesco's. So there you go. Well done, you. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like I'm going to go look up how bad that is. OK, OK, I like it. I like it. I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that one. So, all right. Um, Mark. We talked about this before. I know you have a confession. It's good because it was similar to many of mine. So I'm going to let you take the floor. Well, my my climate confession? Yes. Oh, gosh. You know, I was going to say it's all that travel I have to do because of, you know. Which um, is always mine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, feel, I feel bad. I'll take the train when I can, but I feel that's the worst one. But I come from, my, my father had six brothers and sisters. It was a big Southern Italian family. And then I, I come from, you know, I've got two other brothers who've got lots of kids. And I've got three kids. Um, you know, so is my climate confession or... <laughs> and actually, they're here in the room. Is my climate I was gonna confession... Say, are, they, are they here? Aren't, and, aren't you like... And I'm hoping they're all going to have three each. So, you know, so my climate confession is, is I, love, I love family, I love kids. I'm going to expose you, though, because you did say that they were all vegan and no, you are the exception to that. So. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's true. We come from a you know, mixed household on the vegan, vegan front. You know, I think this the... might be the first time someone's children are their climate confession. So <laughs> congratulations. I don't know where you're sat, but like, I just want to say like two I thumbs know. up. I did this. get sent down the Mary Stopes clinic and told, don't come back until this done. So. <laughs> Some of you will know. Um, All right. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Clover. This has been an excellent conversation. Thank you for joining us this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please hit the follow button to make sure you get next week's release. We are now officially crowdsourcing Climate Confession, so please leave yours in the ratings and the reviews section, and we'll shout out a few next time. A huge thank you to our headline partner, City, who has supported us for the past six years to bring world-changing ideas to the TEDx London stage, and has championed Climate Curious since day one. And shout out to our fabulous team behind the pod. This episode was produced by Josie Coulter. Comms, written by Tess Lowry. Artwork designed by Rebecca Mingus. Curation by Marion Pasha. Mixed and engineered by Ben Beheshti. Music also by Ben Beheshti. Presented by Ben Hurst. And Marion Pasha. Remember, stay curious. <laughs>